Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. She set to work on a novel entitled Lost City. The plot was as follows. One night in the near future, a young girl of 16 living in Santo Domingo decides to sneak out of her house and go for a swim. While swimming, she notices a great flash of light in the northern horizon. At first, she thinks the flash of light is beautiful. Then she feels bad for thinking this because she knows the flash of light must also be terrible. Her fears are confirmed. The next day, her parents die and soon others follow. By the end of the second day, hundreds are dead. By the end of the week, thousands and thousands are dead. Santo Domingo falls into chaos. Overcome with grief, she leaves. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Michael Zapata, whose debut novel, The Lost Book of Adina Moreau, weaves Latin American oral tales and Jewish folklore into a tapestry of rebellion, survival, and exile. Spanning oceans, cultures, and several political uprisings, Zapata creates a unique and fascinating novel about 20th century displacement and exile. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thank you so much. Um, Just a pleasure. So you've lived in New Orleans, Italy, Ecuador, and now Chicago, and you've traveled all over the world. How did your experience lead you to write this absolutely delightful novel? Yeah. So, you know, I I always say, you know, I grew up, uh, my father is from Ecuador, so I grew up first generation. And my, my mother's family has been rooted in Chicago for the past hundred years, um, Lithuanian Jewish heritage. So I always grew up what I like to say is between spaces, between languages, even continents. So starting at a very young age, I, you know, the second I could, I really, really enjoyed traveling. And that's just been a part of my life when I could. I was a high school teacher um, for a number of years. I taught dropouts in Chicago. And so having those summers and being able to travel and, and wander, I think that became like an integral part when I decided to sit down and, and write a novel. And those experiences to me, traveling have been not only worthwhile to the experience much later of being a writer, but I, I think they've been integral to how I understand um, how I understand how stories work. Um, and I, I very much the, the novel itself, I think, functions as 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 a movement of characters traveling and characters being on stage, so to speak, and giving monologues about where they've been and where they want to go. I'm, I'm always interested in this narrative idea of movement. And I didn't realize until I had finished the novel that that must have been influenced by my travels. So you have a full-time job and you're raising, you have young children. Yes. How long did it take you to write this? Yeah. So um, I had initially, I initially in my twenties, I initially written for theater. Um, I had written for the stage a lot of one act plays and plays and I was part of a comedy troupe that kind of transitioned into working um, and trying to write film scripts. I was, I was doing what a lot of writers do and I was in avoiding the thing I really wanted to do, which was write a novel. 
So I had started much later. Um, I had started t- kind of taking fiction writing more seriously when I was 29 and 30 and I actually wrote a novel um, in Ecuador. I took a sabbatical while I was teaching um, and I have since buried that novel. Uh, I came home after a year of uh, living in Ecuador with family and I started I started this novel and, and the entire process to write it took about seven years. Um, by the time I wrote the first sentence and by the time it was published, uh, this previous Tuesday um, was a, was was ten years in total. Um, so during that time, I have a two and a half year old um, son. I have a five month uh, son, and they have, in my memories, so much have impacted sort of the final stages of the novel. And um, I I absolutely adore being a father, and I think as a writer, it it does a lot of things where it expands your sense of terror. <laughs> it also expands your sense of love um, in immeasurable ways. And so I, I think being a father at this point and a writer, I, I can't imagine existing, uh, not having one without the other. Fathers and sons are a, a big topic in this book. Yes. Um, and during the process in which I was doing a lot of editing, um, for this novel, uh, really heavy lifting as far as the editing, this was immediately after my first son was born. When I was living in New Orleans, uh, he was born during, of course, a tropical storm. <laughs> and, and I did a lot of the heavy lifting as far as editing after, um, after he was born. And so it, it, it almost was like a very sleepless kind of dream state, you know, being a new parent, being tired. Um, but what it did allow me to do uh, as far as, you know, the craft of writing is it killed my inner censor. Um, you know, only have a few hours to sit down and work. Um, and so the process for me and remembering it that way was exhausting, but also quite joyful. Yeah. Congratulations on the release. Thank Just you. So almost all of your characters has a story to tell. Which, if any, was the most fun to create and write? Oh, the most fun. Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I had an enormous amount of fun writing um Benjamin, as a child, uh, during the uh, Great Depression, he's a character that just sort of burst forth organically from research that I did and oral histories that I had been reading about the Great Depression, from interviewing my own grandfather, uh, who grew up in the South Side in Chicago during the Great Depression, and his experiences in Maxwell Street, because I always spoke to my grandfather about what that was like. And he always says that, you know, times were tough, but we had fun uh, where we could. Uh, And he has just all these stories about being on rooftops and alleys and exploring Maxwell Street and picking up like pulp science fiction and spy novels in Maxwell Street and taking those home is, is something that he treasured in the midst of just, you know, growing up in the Great Depression and grew up quite poor so all that said, I became very interested in, 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 in children who, who did that. And so Benjamin sort of emerges as characters. He's definitely obsessive at that stage in his life about science fiction. And um, it was a lot of fun to, to think in those terms of exploring a city I live in through the past, but also exploring these stories that I either read through oral traditions or interviewed my grandfather with. Um, It it was quite fun to do that. I always like to start with uh, the portraits that people paint for themselves and and go from there. 
Hmm. So you begin with the Adana, with Adana Moreau's story, how she met her husband and had her son and how she learned to read and write, how she wrote her novels. Is she based on anyone? And if not, how did you dream her? Up? Yeah, <laughs> such a good question. Um, well, you know, I uh, I'd spent a lot of my life growing up in Chicago listening to stories of displacement and exile. And when they weren't coming from my mother's side, they were absolutely coming from friends and family and community members on, on my father's side. Um, growing up in West Irving, uh, Old Irving Park, and it was an Ecuadorian community there, Mexican community, D- Dominican. So there is this, there's this great wealth where I was sort of accidentally, as a child, put in, in front of all these stories of exile. And when thinking of the character of the Dominicana, I, I was thinking her congruently with New Orleans as being the northernmost Latin American city and inheriting this enormous tradition of exiles and refugees from the Caribbean and Latin America. Um, and I almost like imagined or thought of the character of Adana Moreau as uh, a perfect parallel to the city itself. Um, and so once I kind of thought of that process and, and I had been going to New, or- New Orleans for just so much of my life, two or three times a year since I've been 20, I started to research and going to the historical museums and sort of the archives at Tulane University and finding these oral traditions of uh, Haitians and, and Dominican refugees that ended up in New Orleans. And I just I sort of fell in love with this character of the Dominicana and New Orleans simultaneously. <laughs> mm-hmm. Over the course of the novel, we hear the plot of, of both of Adana Moreau's books. Did you yes. call the, the plot because they're fun to read and fun, fun to write and fun to read, <laughs> or because there was something you wanted the reader to know? Thank you. Um, so, you know, I'm just, I always, am, there's always, you know, Borges once said that he, that there's hundreds of novels he'll never be able to write, so he just writes their summaries. I'm loosely paraphrasing, and I, I just sort of fell in love with this idea, and it's, I think, definitely more common in Latin American literary tradition to play around with summarizing novels instead of writing the novels themselves. Um, it was just this form that I had a lot of fun playing around with. Um, you know, and I, I, I got to the point where sometimes it would be, you know, pages and pages and pages. <laughs> I really tried to, like, cut. Um, where necessary, but I really did have quite a lot of fun summarizing novels instead of writing those novels themselves. It became this kind of idea of multiplicity, which I think does run through the novel, whether it's parallel universes, you know, theoretical physics, or whether it's the multiplicity found in science fiction. I I had a lot of fun with the form of of summarizing books uh, Mm. and not writing them. It was fun to read. <laughs> Thank so you. Adana's, Adana's first novel is a huge success, and the publisher's ready to publish the second novel. So why does she burn it? Yeah, so we find out very early on in the novel that she becomes sick. There's a typhoid epidemic in New Orleans, um, you know, right after around the time of the Great Depression. Um and I thought that, you know, by the process of burning it, I always think about what memories we choose to leave behind and what memories we choose not to. And this idea that I think came much later after think after writing it, because I really, you know, writing it, I think, was very much an organic sentence-by-sentence process. But looking back after the first draft, thinking of this theme of what memories we leave behind and what memories we sort of create for those who come after us. And I, I imagine a writer 
who had a first successful book and was not able to see the second book be published would consider destroying the manuscript um, because in a subsequent way, you know, the, the memories that those of us who come from more oppressed backgrounds or exiles or refugees we leave behind are often manipulated. And I thought quite substantially about how memories of, of you know, Latinx community and, and for sure Jewish communities, how that becomes manipulated when the person isn't around anymore, when those memories are gone. So burning it felt like a, an appropriate thing. Um, and it, those sort of experiences always become sort of emotive and, and catastrophic responses. But I think Adana... Uh, would be a character who would do that. Mm. So your, nov your novel is divided into sections, which thank you, because they make it easier to understand <laughs> the time period. Good, good, good. Both, uh, both uh, in worlds where you're hopping from different worlds in the, in the literature, you're hopping from time to time. In the second section, we're now in 2004, and we meet Saul. And it's just after his grandfather died, and we learned his story about how his parents were killed in a terrorist bombing in Tel Aviv. And we also learn about his best friend, Javier. And both gentlemen are significant to your overall story. Yeah. What can you tell? Friendship is another another big theme in your novel. What can you tell us about Saul and Javier? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, previously, like I said before, I was very fortunate to grow up um, in communities that were full of um, first-generation Americans and immigrants. A lot, a lot of my friends I grew up with were first generation coming from Iraq, uh, Syrians from Iraq and from India and, and Asia, and for sure, all throughout Latin America. And so when writing those two characters, I, I, I did deeply think about the friendships I've accumulated over the years and, and, and how in some sense you have two individuals coming from very different parts of the world find this friendship and, and, and a friendship that has lasted decades. And, and I think the novel does hinge on friendships because you have Maxwell and Benjamin, obviously during the historical period. And, and then you have Javier and Saul during the 2004-2005 period. And I found that when you have this extended family, when you have refugees and exiles in a community seeking, you know, seeking safety and, and seeking friendship, it becomes a very powerful motivator for how people view their own lives and for how narratives work. And um, I think in some degree, I wanted to express sort of the complicated, joyous friendships that emerge from first-generation Americans based mm -hmm. on their histories. Yeah. We learned that there's a connection. We figure out the connection between the first section of the book yeah. and the part where Saul finds this package that his recently deceased grandfather had FedExed to Mac, Professor Maxwell Moreau. And we yes. realized that's the Maxwell, Maxwell Moreau, who's the son of Adana Moreau. So tell us about that. Yeah, so there's this, again, I think I, uh, this, literary, uh, this literary tradition of sort of the literary mystery and the lost manuscripts have always really love that idea. And I, I think, again, in the Latin American tradition, there's there's so much there to play with. Um, but so much, I think, was thinking about how the real world of theoretical physics and, and parallel universes and how that influences science fiction and vice versa. You have this culminating, complicated experience, you know, 
in which science fiction affects science and science affects science fiction and it becomes like this parallel um, to each other. So I wanted to sort of embed that uh, as much as I could within uh, a story about a lost manuscript. Um, you know, you have science fiction writers like Philip K. Dick and, and Vonnegut and Samuel Delaney are, are all very informed by science, but also sort of project um, project what science, how, excuse me, how science fiction and science become entangled. Um, and I wanted to sort of express that entanglement through a lost manuscript. Mm -hmm. Your novel takes the reader across the century, across the globe. It's almost as if the places themselves are characters whose stories need to be told. What do you have to say about that? The geography of place. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I, I, I've thought about this most recently now that the, now that the book has been out. Um, but I, growing up, again, growing up in this liminal space between languages and countries and, and continents, and I've always felt very drawn to place and to space. And having the opportunity when I was a young teacher to travel so much of the world, um, I felt so comfortable, um, you know, just as a teacher and traveler, um, elsewhere between those continents and spaces and languages. And so when I sat down later in life to write, I couldn't help, I think, but be impacted by some of the most comfortable places I feel as a writer as well as between continents, um, between being sort of a stranger in a strange land, um, which, which does have a deep, uh, it has a deep history in, in Jewish literature, of course. And I think as I started the process of writing the novel, I was immediately drawn uh, to travel in the same way I was uh, as a person. Mm. You also tell stories about several brutal regimes yeah. that took place during the 20th century. What's the message there? Yeah, you, you, you know, I, uh, being a teacher in Chicago uh, and I had taught dropouts, I think one thing that it impacted me at an early age in my 20s was that I found out that it, when it comes to the real world, you know, not, not literature, I'm very much a materialist. Um, and what I mean by that is looking at the material sort of class conflicts and, and race conflicts through history and not to be overtly political, but I was always very interested in those interspaces in which people gain or lose power. Um, and I think when you look at the history of Latin America, who who impacts or steals that power has been largely North American and European involvement in the Latin Americas. And so we're speaking about that and looking at it in a political framework. It's It's been very important to me to sort of materially divide those who have and those who don't and sort of the consequences of that, whether it's in the streets, that's, um, whether you have casero lazos, which are these uh, happening all over within the previous years too in Latin America, but are these protests with pots and pans that sort of build into this sort of class consciousness, or whether you look at it historically in Europe and, and the, the rise of fascism or in the Russian Revolution, I, I've always tried to view those through a materialist lens, and even as a writer. And I think the trick of writing fiction then is to bring that into stories and individuals and how individuals view them. Um, I'm not interested in writing political novels. I'm interested in, in viewing individuals who are affected by these movements or, or, or catastrophic historical 
crises that that they go through. Again, I think painting the portrait of the individual um, is going to be like my first priority as a novelist. Uh, when I'm not writing, my first priority is the material gains and losses of power. <laughs> Um, we're back in 1930 after Maxwell's mother dies, and thir- the 13-year-old Maxwell Moreau train hops from New Orleans to Chicago, trying to find his father. And then in the next chapter, we're in 2005, driving with Saul and Max from Chicago to New Orleans. We're there trying to find the elusive Maxwell. And that's also where Hurricane Katrina has just devastated the city. So how do these two journeys tie into other beloved journey tales? Yeah. Um, you know, I saw, you know, I saw like time, time on top of each other. It's hard to, it's, it's hard to take a trip and not think about trips that have been taken before you or or trips that might come after you. And there's just this this core of me growing up with science fiction and adventure novels that I, I like to see what happens when you set characters out, so to speak, into, into the world. But I also think it ties in again to the sense of as, predecessors or ancestors of uh, people who have been exiled, people who have had to really contend with movement, and whether that movement was through uh, one country or whether that was the passing over the Atlantic Ocean or a movement like my father's where he took a plane to Chicago and um, as, as an immigrant with nothing. And the in-between spaces and those liminal spaces have always been really interesting to me, both as a person and and a writer, and, and I think that's what makes sort of the classic adventure story or the classic story of exile and immigration so interesting. What I wanted to look at somewhat differently is is sort of looking when Saul and um, Javier make that journey in 2004, 2005, what does that mean for people who are somewhat convinced that we're sort of at the end of empire um, and, and going towards a, a devastated American city? Um, and what that would mean for for excuse me for Javier, who was a essentially a disaster journalist, um, and for Saul, who is still sort of trying to recognize recognize and reconcile what it meant means to be an American in the first place. Can we talk about that for a second? Saul realizes at some point that his best friend, that Javier, is a is addicted or obsessed with disaster. How did that happen? Is that a human condition? Is, do you have that? Uh, <laughs> is it a, to be obsessed with disaster? You know, it's such a, it's such a good question. Or do we all have it? I, I, I do, you know, on, on an instinctual sort of like human level, I do think humans are obsessed with disaster. I think it's probably an evolutionary technique of survival. Uh, by being able to anticipate many, many futures, um, I think it's one of the most core and interesting aspects of human nature. Uh, what I do think is that that becomes expanded in, in very strange ways um, in a capitalist empire because all of a sudden you have this sort of natural human tendency that gets exploited um, and monetized. And so when we turn on the, the national news or, or, or when we read online um, potential disasters or disasters you know, in waiting or disasters that are happening, I think when we capitalize on that through journalism, it becomes something a little bit more dark than what's initially sort of a, a function of human survival. And so Javier himself, I think, be, realizes that he be, has become sort of wrapped up in a journalist that is is playing that role. And I think he's very conflicted about it. Um, I don't think he feels comfortable um, as a journalist once he kind of goes through that process. Yeah. 
Somebody makes a comment about this comment. All those Jews for whom a paradox was everything. What do you mean by that? Yeah, um, I <laughs> one of the one of the joys of of growing up, um, you know, in Chicago and being having my mother said be Lithuanian Jewish is the idea of like. The paradox, you know, my grandfather at the, at the table would say, um, if there's any people that get to argue with God, it's us, so it's like, uh-huh. which, which is, which is a paradox itself. Because, uh, yeah. and, and I, and I, I always, I always looking at the language of how my great grandmother, who I was so fortunate to know, um, all the way until I was 13, when she passed, just the way she sort of used English and Yiddish interchangeably. She always called called me as a kid a Luftmensch. Um, mm-hmm. And I took it very, like, as a, like as a compliment. <laughs> Depending on how she used it, I was, my head was in a book or I was the kid who was wandering down the street. So my head was in the clouds. But for her, I think it was a compliment too, because she was like, you know, I'm always thinking about possibility. Um, a lot of that was built into the book sort of accidentally, but I did think about my great-grandmother um, and how she would use Yiddish as as as, as sort of like this biting paradox uh, mm-hmm. when we were at the dinner table, and, and I also think that being Jewish introduces a lot of paradox um, historically, and the ways in which we sort of interact in new uh, showing up on the shores of many many new countries, um, and having that sort of thousand plus years of diaspora has has introduced I think in a people who's have been so devoted to the book, um, had so devoted to sort of this like movable culture of, of literature, um, a, a lot of fun and interesting paradoxes along the way. So let's talk about how friendship plays an important and recurring role in the novel. Adana Moreau's friendship with the librarian, Maxwell's friendship with Benjamin, Saul's friendship with Maxwell. They're all life changing. Yeah. I, I think when you, you know, it's, it's always been, like I said, um, a little bit previously is, is when you show up on the shores of a new country, um, I think you have to build your community from the ground up, which is a common experience with immigrants and exiles. Um, but to the extent that that also translates to a certain type of survival, um, I think is so key in relationships. I, I saw that continually with my father he's a jewelry caster here in chicago so he he was on jewelers row and i would i grew up you know on weekends and summers working for him and and so i would go deliver you know i essentially would deliver and pick up jobs for him and to be able to speak to colleagues and friends of his and sort of see what that warren of friendship meant to many people who came here with nothing and how that translated not only into sort of deep and profound friendship but also in a very real way, a very materialist way, it, it translates into being able to survive in a new country where so many things are set against you. Hmm. Oh, wow, Michael. I really, I read this just in a day. Yeah, wow. There is so much more to discuss. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to tell everybody to read your book and let's talk about it on Facebook or Shuffle. So tell me, what are you working on next? Yeah, so I'm in the sort of happy wandering early stages of writing a novel about an Ecuadorian ecologist in the Amazon and her son, who is a census taker in Chicago in the year 2050. Mm. Um, is it fair by then, the census taking? 
<laughs> it's never been fair. <laughs> I'm asking. Yeah. I, no, I, it's, it's less and less so in the future. Um, (laughs) for the sake of the novel yeah you know it's interesting because reading about the census and the early history of it and sort of gerrymandering was installed right at the beginning um so we're facing those same historical barriers today so So if we we see a lot of ecuadorians in your book we'll understand yeah (laughs) absolutely thank you so much absolutely such a joy thank you so much for taking the time to talk today and thank you for joining me Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Michael Zapata, author of The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join. Thank you.